economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lawson Medlin, producer and graduate assistant elect for the Gortney Institute. Today we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel, Chair of Economics. Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, our graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right. <clears throat> Thought we'd uh, kick off with a Topic on writing and intellectual property, in a sense, um, the uh, academics for many moons have had their colleagues be the referees, in a sense, and, and there's different ways that they do this, but you write a, a professional article that's on the cutting edge of knowledge, something that's pushed the envelope on a particular area. So in economics, there's lots of different areas, and uh, you come up with a, a novel contribution and then you submit it to a place and um, some other professors look it over and, and tell you if you, oh, this was done 20 years ago, or, or yes, you've uh, contributed and here's some ways maybe you can make it better. Well, it sounds like Justin thinks this is dead, uh, that it's kind of old and time to put it to bed. Uh, is that the case? Or am I putting words in your mouth, Justin, judging by the grimace? As usual, you're... Uh, I don't think the general public understands maybe the role peer review plays in academia and the way um, uh, research articles and published articles get vetted and the role that those articles play in the in uh, the promotion of knowledge in academia and the kind of real attack that the system has come under lately. Um, and I, I think it's justified. So you're certainly right about uh, when you say that Justin thinks there's a, there's a problem with it. Um, but maybe it would be worthwhile to kind of, I'll give a, a spitball approach about what peer review is supposed to do. And then Peter can, you guys can critique me and tell me if, if this is kind of uh, the way you see it too. And then we'll maybe out, uh, outline some problems that have come up with peer review um, and what the future of uh, the production of knowledge might look like. So um, if you are an undergraduate and you want to go and write a paper, usually you need to cite your sources. And um, if you are, you know, even like a, a journalist or something and you are looking for information, you usually get the get that information from academic journals and um, academic journals have played a really important role in the 20th century and the 21st to a certain extent in that they have gatekeepers. So you can't just publish anything in an academic journal. Um, the way it works is that usually, um, you know, good academic journals, you submit an article, that article takes the editor uh, that you submit your article to takes your name off it and sends it to at least you, usually two other people in your field, experts, um, and he has them evaluate this article. And it's only if both of those experts say this is, as Russ said, you know, um, a contribution to the knowledge in the field. Nobody's done this before. Uh, this is new and it's worthwhile. And then that article will get published in the journal. So things that are published in academic journals, therefore, have this kind of imprimatur of um, justification that this is worthwhile, usually um, that it's plausible or probably true. Um, 
And uh, this has meant that um, this is one of the things that a lot of academics get graded on, essentially, by their administrators is, hey, are you publishing in peer-reviewed journals? So whether or not and how much you publish is usually used as a metric by your administration, um, by your peers, too, as to how productive of a scholar you are. Um, how much are you contributing to inf uh, to the growth of information in your field? And especially in the 20th century, um, this was very important and really effective in the sense that um, this gatekeeping process um, was uh, used for those purposes that we just talked about, uh, keeping bad information out, uh, vetting good information, um, or at least what editors thought was good information. Um, and do you, do you guys have anything to add to that? Does that seem? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, one like piece of context that matters for this is recognizing how different the university system was when peer review was kind of like at its heights, uh, you know, Let's talk about, for example, the 1950s, the 1970s, what universities looked like. Uh, and the biggest difference between then and today is there were met, like far fewer universities. And so you wouldn't have like 20 universities per state like we do today. Uh, so these intellectual circles, people basically at least knew of each other in these research networks. And so, you know, you get a top journal submission from somebody, you know who that person is basically. Uh, nowadays, things have changed pretty significantly to where, you know, you, you have like thousands of professors of each particular topic uh, who could submit to any given journal. Uh, and journals, because of that, have basically kind of stretched out in terms of how much people have respect for them. And so there's very high level journals uh, that have very low acceptance rates. And then there's lower level journals that have higher acceptance rates. And so this is all kind of, I'd say, a somewhat natural byproducts. It doesn't mean the whole thing uh, works well, but it's a somewhat natural byproduct of the fact that academia has just ballooned over the last 50 years. Do you agree, Justin? Yeah. Um, do you think I have the sales pitch for peer review correct? though that this is ideally what peer review does yeah i think we can, is there anything i'm missing out that uh, i i just think the yeah the for the listeners the the main purpose was to uh keep the content credible that it is really pushing the edge of knowledge with something new that was always the point of getting in a journal and uh, the growth, um, and I think this might come up later, so I won't say too much on it, but that we have lots of journals because now there's this push that, oh, you have to publish to keep your job. And then all of a sudden that's a profitable opportunity for some, uh, let's say, not so reputable journal to, to evolve, to accept papers. And uh, so it kind of went, I think that's what's lessened and maybe part of where you're going with your talk that whether it's time to just um, put it to bed or they're just not as powerful as they used to be. And maybe one other thing that I, I don't think a lot of the lay public understands, this is definitely true in philosophy. I'm not so sure if it's true in economics, but um, it might be, um, is that uh, in philosophy, a publication in a journal, uh, a higher ranking journal is more prestigious than a book publication um, for the most part. Um, that is, most of the academic work is done in journals. Um, and so uh, that is kind of where the, the groundwork 
um, the intellectual groundwork ideally took place at least, um, you know, in the 20th century. I think that's true in economics too. Yeah, I'd say yeah. it's it's even more true in economics yeah. than most professions. Yeah, if you're where, getting in the top tier journals, you are. Yeah, yeah. At a high-powered university, book publications actually don't even matter. Like yeah. they they wouldn't help you get tenure. Whereas uh, academic articles, even a low-level academic article, actually probably would be better than a book for your CV. Now that doesn't mean it's actually better, but. But I also and is it true also that maybe like if neither of your parents are academics mine aren't either if i told them like hey i have a book I'm getting a book published they their eyes would light up but if i said i'm getting a journal article published they, they don't care you know yeah but, true uh, yeah yeah so i think that's uh not understood by the general public and it's it's usually. difficult for our students to understand it i, I mm -hmm. still kind of pull my hair out that well you got to cite some academic sources or scholarly journal really have to tell them and then they continue to um cite something from Forbes magazine and well this was a journal article and no it's not so um it's certainly a foreign concept to uh, the average person so if that's the sales pitch for um peer review um you guys have been hinting at some problems with peer review and some of the things that have happened regarding peer review in the 20th century and i read a a great substack by a historian recently um the substack is experimentalhistory.substack.com and it was about um the uh, rise and fall of peer review and it's and peer review certainly um has risen and it's uh at or near its uh, its apex. And um, a lot of people, and I'm one of them, think that it's it's going to come crashing down um, and under just, a bunch of... Yes. I hate to do this because you already asked, but before you get into that, did you mention the blind system that's usually associated with... Yeah, that might be something to, as far as the credibility. I don't think that was mentioned. Yeah. So I said that the editor takes your name off the article yeah, and okay. sends it to two people in your field, right? That's, so... That's right. Um, yeah. And it's double yeah. blind. So they don't know the people in your field also don't know who you are and you don't know who they are. In, in theory, you never learn who the people who are who review your paper. In theory, this is, yeah. yeah, this is that it's, it's double blind, right? Yeah. So you don't know whose work you're reviewing and uh, whoever's re reviewing, the person you're reviewing doesn't know they're reviewing them. Yeah. 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 Um, Sorry, uh, you were, yeah. now you were about to talk about, uh, you know, things crashing and burning, I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, this, this kind of came to my mind recently because I got asked to uh, review somebody's article um, for a journal. And it was, you know, I got asked by the old director of my graduate program, who's the editor in chief of some journal. Um, and so I was you know, with my kids at the playground the other day trying to read this article and review it and see whether or not I thought it was acceptable for publication. And then I read this article about the uh, rise and fall of peer review instead of actually doing the peer review. Um, <laughs> And I, I, I think the article makes some fantastic points, but um, I was wondering whether or not you guys have any, before we get into like uh, what I think these problems are with peer review, would you like to throw some problems out of your own and think uh, like reasons you think uh, peer review might be a problem now or, not, or be more trouble than it's worth? Can I? Yeah. Uh, my first thought was, I mean, when the origination of like publications was so you can get your work out there to as many hands as possible. But now that we have the Internet, uh, you can get your work out there very easy and the cost is pretty much zero. 
And so the peer review process kind of makes sense, but the publication behind it has kind of lost the authority. If that makes sense. And so the peer review could uh, be leading down like this downtrend, like you were saying. Yeah, peer review was developed in an era where editors needed to know whether information was worth printing because printing was a kind of, uh, you know, valuable commodity and it was scarce. And, you know, you didn't want to devote uh, time putting out information that uh, could be uh, bad. Right. Um, and it was it's it was costly to put out information in those in those days. I mean, now putting out information is actually relatively cheap. Um, in fact, it's much, much cheaper to just put your work online than it is usually to submit to peer review. Sometimes some publications make you pay uh, a submission fee. Um, and this might actually make sense because they have to pay. They have to ask other people to take their time uh, reviewing the work. Right. Um, so that's definitely one aspect is that the cost of actually putting the information out has gone pretty much to zero. Um, yeah, and I, I think my criticism with the limited exposure, Peter, and you are much more uh, active in this, but uh, just the length of time to submit, and then there might be a little bit of a fee, but by the time you get uh, feedback, you're kind of sitting back, and then if you do get rejected, you have to find another journal, a lower journal, to see if they'll accept it. Um, so I, I think that makes that relative to how easy it is to get your work out in a cost-free manner uh, has been a, a maybe a problem with the system. And, and if, if people don't, uh, to Luke's point, really, I, I think if people don't really respect or know about the peer review system and the value of it, then it doesn't really matter as much except for promotion within your organization. So I, I think that could be, uh, so that's not my primary concern with the system as it stands now. Uh, and one of the reasons is, um, even if it's like the printing of things right now, or the distribution is cheaper, it's more expensive than ever to find good things compared to less good things because of that, right? Like, uh, there's lots of sub stacks out there and how many of the sub stacks as a percentage are, you know, going to be high quality sub stacks. It's probably actually a pretty small percentage. Um, whereas, you know, peer reviewed articles when the system was, uh, you know, at its height, we could, I would imagine it's like something like maybe half, maybe every other, I, I don't know for sure. I'm just kind of making something up, but there's still kind of a cost associated with like putting your work out there. And it's more of the cost of like promotion or acceptance of the work. And so in that sense, there's maybe still like a function for, uh, journals, uh, that's kind of similar to the function of like any other, you know, well-regarded platform, if that makes sense. This Go looks ahead. like a good spot for our break. I, don't, I think we can talk about the system imploding, maybe some of the uh, the uh, less savory things that go on that I've heard about too, uh, just as the system has lost some of its luster. So we'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. This spring, we have an awesome uh, PPE league going on where it's philosophy, politics, and economics being discussed among various colleges and universities around the nation. 
This is all going to come to fruition with a national championship in Kansas City, our first ever. We hope that you'll like to support events like this, and we can keep young minds being sharp and ready for today's world. Okay, so we're back. So, Peter, you want to lead us back into what you think is uh, some problems, issues, or is it just a complete racket? Yeah, so I, I think maybe some of the biggest issues that have, have come to, to bear is I think that there is a benefit, like I mentioned to Justin, uh, to having some sort of like platform that helps sort like those things that are worth reading from not worth reading. But it seems like uh, the platforms that we have aren't doing like a perfect job. I, I, I'm not uh, saying in every profession, in every journal, we have issues like these, but I think that it's crept its way into most fields and a lot of journals, which is that one way I think that uh, these decisions are made really isn't on uh, the quality of the publication necessarily at the high levels, uh, but more the relationships that are had between the people associated with the publications. And so, uh, and I, I think everybody kind of knows this happens and it's almost obvious to say it out loud in academic circles, but, you know, different universities, for example, host different journals. And, you know, it wouldn't be surprising to people, I don't think, if you pointed out that it seems like, oh, a lot of graduate students from this university publish in this really high journal that's from that university. And so editors tend to be academics, and they also tend to be people who teach, you know, students uh, who are trying to publish in journals. And it's better for programs if students have publications when they leave or, you know, things that are close to being published, submitted, you know, accepted for review at least. And so this does kind of create this weird incentive process for uh, editors of journals to push for uh, people they have a relationship with, whether it's, you know, their students or, you know, their colleagues, uh, because these articles are so heavily associated with prestige uh, that it's valuable to have your your friends, basically, uh, in the prestigious journals. Again, I'm not saying that every publication is this and that the only time people get into these journals is when they've, you know, successfully gained relationships with people who are in charge of the journals. But it does happen to some degree. Uh, I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. And so the big institutions that are academically successful, whether it's the Ivy Leagues or other institutions that have crept their way up there, they tend to publish in really good journals. And they also tend to run those very good journals. And again, it's, it's not that that's always what's happening. Uh, but most of the time, referees, reviewers of papers can figure out who is writing the paper. It's not very hard anymore. You can look at citations. Uh, some people post their articles online before they end up published. And so it's pretty easy to search then. And so this has created sort of a problem where uh, it's there's almost like uh, the real thing that's being selected on is your the prestige of your institution rather than the, the prestige of your arguments. Justin, would you say that that's kind of like one of the main issues right now? A hundred percent. And, you know, I think peer review worked better when, like you said, there were fewer academics, but there were also a lot fewer conferences. Mm. And one of the things that happens at conferences yeah. is that academics get together and they uh, share drafts of papers with each other. Yep. Um, and then those academics often also have uh, versions of their papers in drafts on their personal website. So it is, uh, it's, trivial in most cases to find out who is uh, the author of any given paper. And then you're right. Um, 
they get published based on the prestige of the person, but it's this weird kind of self-looking ice cream cone where, or, or the prestige of the institution, but the prestige of that institution is also then based on the amount of publications that they're getting, which are based on the prestige of the, the institution itself. So these institutions have uh, a vested interest in doing that exact thing that you're talking about, um, which is just kind of insular self-publishing. Um, and I, I know that happens uh, in philosophy. Um, drafts of papers by very famous philosophers um, circulate for years before they're published. Um, sometimes, hilariously, uh, they are kept from being published by uh, academic enemies of the person who is uh, trying to publish them because, uh, you know, they'll submit to peer review. It'll get submitted to the other. Uh, if it's submitted to a top journal, it'll go for uh, review to one of the other top philosophers in the field. That top, other top philosopher will, of course, disagree with that person and will write in response to in a peer review, like a 14 page response. You need to change all of these things. And then that paper then by the top one of the top academics just gets stuck in, you know, essentially uh, a version of academic purgatory and never gets published, but uh, just gets circulated. So um, it's it's a problem in both senses that it uh, it can let through um, or greenlight articles, maybe not based on the merit of the argument, um, based on kind of personal affection, and it can also uh, hold up articles based on personal animosity when you know exactly who the uh, who the author of these papers are. Right. Um, so yeah, and I think th this environment is just ripe for what Mansur Olson called the sclerosis of collective action in small bureaucracies, and as they get bigger. Uh, they get chummier. I mean, we're talking about a version of cronyism in a sense of of uh, kind of the good old boy network of the people who know each other and, oh, they're at my alma mater, all the stuff you're saying. I did want to highlight for the listeners that a lot of these circles are really fairly small anyway. So you might have uh, public choice economics, labor economics, international economics, environmental economics, and there's usually just one or two top tier journals that really are the ones you want to get into and then that's where this, as Justin highlighted, goes on, where now with the internet and other means, the whole double blind system is really uh, called to question. And if that's not there, then we're back to the whole story of, you know, what are other ways to get your to get your work out? If they're if they have some good old boys network, then it's not serving its function anymore. But we haven't even touched on what I think are the two biggest problems of peer review. Um, and the first is that the way journals currently operate, um, once, uh, you know, I can do anything I want with my work. Um, I can put it on a blog, but once I submit it to peer review, the rules are you can't submit it anywhere else during that time period, right? right. Um, when it's under review at a publication. And then uh, when it gets published, uh, the holder of uh, the copyright for that article is now that journal. Mm -hmm. And um, most of these journal articles are behind paywalls. You right. actually usually have to be a college student or employed in academia in order to gain access to a lot of these databases that house these journals. And what this actually means is that uh, something weird happens to an article when you publish it in a journal that, you know, 
isn't one of like the top three or four top journals in the field is that oftentimes it goes into this kind of academic black hole where once you've published it, nobody reads it. Um, the last person who reads your article is the peer reviewer. Um, yeah. Because it's really costly. The general public can't access it. Um, the only people who can access it are undergraduates writing papers. Usually, if you are writing an academic paper, it's going to be so specific and so so focused that will uh, it will appeal only to other academics in the field. Um, so it's it uh, it incentivizes you to produce work that is um, very narrow in scope, and then it walls off anyone from being able to access it. So uh, I can guarantee you that any single one of these podcasts that we've ever done will reach more people than any published paper that I have out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good point with the paywall thing too, being uh, a breaker, because even our university students don't have full access to all journals and they run into that wall um, sometimes, especially depending on different fields like economics, I try to grant them uh, special access to one that does it, so. But Justin, that's not a problem because we have all these wonderful institutions like the New York Times that <laughs> uh, pay for access to academic uh, outlets. And then they can just filter all the, you know, wonderful <laughs> scientific uh, advancement that's made to the general public. So everything's working fine, right? Yes. So for anyone who wants to outsource the maintenance of their cognitive architecture to the program director at NPR, the New York Times, <laughs> uh, that's what you're doing, right? Um, sure. yeah. So that, I mean, that's one problem is that literally once you publish it, it becomes, uh, you're not even allowed to, sh in most cases, share it with anybody else. And anybody else who wants it has to go pay some third party to access it. Now, there are workarounds to that, right? But it it is... Like that is the design of the system. Yeah. Um, so that's one problem. And the second problem I kind of hinted at was that um, the peer review process makes, uh, makes it the case that you want to publish, um, since you get credit for each publication, usually want to break uh, like dissertations up into smaller papers. And so each of your publications ends up being very narrow. And... Um, if you've ever gone through the peer review process, oftentimes uh, academic papers are written in a certain way to get the most, you know, you want to have the most citations that you can in there. Um, and you essentially what you want to do, um, and you will get in trouble if you don't, this is part of the reason why the editor takes your name off the paper. But if you have a bunch of identifying information in the paper too, they'll probably try to ask you to remove that as well. So what you, what this process um necessitates is for you to write a kind of bloodless paper with um, just arguments and data, right? Um, and to have it be as narrowly focused as possible. And so that results in a paper that, you know, well, it's a funny thing that it's behind the paywall and nobody could read it because you've written it in such a way that nobody would ever want to read it in the first place anyway, right? If, if the general public hasn't read any, uh, you know, I, uh, go read a paper in the Journal of Formal Logic or go read, you know, a paper in uh, one of the top uh, economics journals. Uh, I submit to you that they will probably be uh, close to unreadable. Um, and this is the way the system incentivizes writing to work. 
Um, and this is why, for instance, um, you know, our parents might get more excited if uh, we write a book rather than uh, if you uh, write an article is because books are written uh, and sold, you know, often to libraries too, but the general public can actually access books. Um, and you're allowed to put a little bit more of your own personal information in there. And so like academic writing incentivizes you to produce these weird kind of decontextualized um, arguments that uh, I usually think like when people think of really great works of philosophy or, um, you know, go back to like the writings of Adam Smith or you know David Ricardo. Um, these arguments have some uh, personal identification in there. They're obviously from a particular time and place. And I think that actually benefits that that makes these things more worth reading and that uh, peer review kind of it's an attempt at this idealized, decontextualized knowledge, uh, but what it produces, nobody wants, um, and they couldn't get it even if they did want it. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I think there's something to that. And you see that with, uh, you know, the, one of the things that's talked about listeners, uh, especially in the social sciences, um, though this maybe will trickle its way to the natural sciences too, but uh, is this idea of like a replicability crisis or a citation crisis where we have a lot of articles that you uh, can't reproduce their results. Uh, and that's one issue is if something is really true, it should you know be true over time. But another issue is that um, the average social science article is cited like one time or less. Uh, it's less, by the way, I, I just mean like less than one time. Uh, and so not only is the broader community not reading this, the scientific community is not even reading most articles, right? They're not even being cited by uh, fellow scientists in their work. And so there really is this like weird supply issue that's going on. Um, but I guess this leads to a question of, you know, uh, one of my professors at George Mason University always tried to uh, give us uh, the uh, the thought experiment of like, well, would you want to be read in one year, 10 years, or a hundred years? Like if you had to choose between those three, uh, what would you pick? And most people will say like a hundred years, right? Most people, uh, you know, there are some people who want to be fashionable. And so maybe those people choose the one year or whatever they want people to read them. But most people, when they think of like an academic legacy, they're thinking of like the greats in their field. Uh, you mentioned Smith, but you know, we can think of others. Ronald Coase is another, Mises is another. Uh, for economics. I don't know who that is in philosophy. Uh, but, you know, these greats uh, are the people who we tend to, you know, like idealize or sort of like think, well, it would be great if I could someday end up to be as well read as, you know, this person or even one tenth of them in a hundred years. And, uh, you know, kind of our conversation here is leading me to believe that it seems like the journal articles, at least by and large, uh, don't tend to be trending in a direction that that's a, a good way to be read in a hundred years. And so the question is, what is the alternative way? You know, what will people be reading in 100 years? Is it going to be books? Are we reading, do we have archive substacks in 100 years? Like what, what is the kind of future then of uh, long-lived ideas? Yeah, that's a great question. What's your answer to that one, Justin? What's, what's the answer to the problem, I guess, is what you're poking at, which I think is a, is a great thing to think about because I we're already so scattered with information and um, not knowing necessarily what, you know, how do you validate that this clown is saying something that's scientific or been tested and 
yeah. trusted by their peers. I, I don't think there's an easy answer. Because by the way, I like Substack also, but my general opinion of Substack is that's a one-year read, uh, not a 10-year read and certainly not a 100-year read. I think there are very few blogs. In fact, there are a few. Uh, you and I could probably think of a few that have been read for 10 years, even after publication, but there's not many. And so like, is there like an alternative style here that's going to take over? Are we in this like weird spot? Is it like only books? I don't know. Sure. So I'm going to I'm going to say one more thing first because Peter brought up a couple of important points. Uh, so uh, to answer your question, I, I think the answer is just anarchy. Uh, but uh, and I'll expand <laughs> on that in a second. Um, but you mentioned also like the replicability crisis, right? Mm-hmm. In the social sciences, and this um, so there are, are a bunch of famous experiments in social science that um, haven't been a, haven't been able to be replicated, right? Like and, all of the um, economics. <laughs> okay yeah um yeah um now this should surprise us if peer review worked right the point of peer review is to prevent stuff like that from getting published in the first place yeah there are also a ton of academics at least to like publish it with the parameters that we would expect it not to replicate, you know, under certain conditions or something, right? There should be no surprise to, uh, yeah, the error bars have to be way off for that to happen. Yeah. And and so, uh, and not only that, there are also a bunch of, uh, experiments in like psychology where it turns out like people fake their data sets. We don't, we don't hear like, yeah, well, we don't hear like so-and-so got fired because they submitted a paper with a fake data set to a journal. Yeah. What we hear is so-and-so got fired after the journal article got published, and then people realize that the data set was faked. Mm-hmm. And that's just evidence that peer review is not working to do one of the things that it's supposed to be doing anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, Although with, so, a fraud, with fraud of just faking a data set, I mean, the an editor or a reviewer could, you know, run their own regression, try to mimic the results, but they're still going to get the same results if they have the the faked data. Well, so, I, I mean, mean, to a certain extent, there's going to be fraud in life. But, and, but in theory, I mean, if you're really testing an argument's rigor, then like you find a different data set and apply the argument, right? Now, that's obviously really time consuming, yeah, which which say. feeds into the problem of like there's just too many academics. I think, like you know, in theory, well, I, I, I agree, Russ. There, there's a like there's going to be a certain amount of problem. Yeah. That, that's if not you run true. the same regression on the same data set, yeah, you'll get the same answer. But the point is a lot of, uh, especially, in, I know like there's an example in psychology where uh, after publication, people looked at this data set and said, wait a minute, like this, this sure. data set, this data set looks wrong on its face. Random data doesn't look like this, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you run the same regression on that same data, you'll get the same answer. But you should also, a competent reviewer, uh, if peer review worked, would uh, would be looking at Wait a minute. This this data set doesn't look right either. So that's uh, that's one thing is that the replicability crisis just shows that peer review isn't working um, and isn't doing the thing it's supposed to be doing. So your your question is, well, what would we do instead, right? And I I think you are one hundred percent right that um, most academics would want to be read in a hundred years rather than um, be read uh, just this year, right? Um, and I do think that you're also, you know, you're preaching to the choir here if you're saying that uh, the current journalistic practice makes it the case that you are producing papers that are unfit to be read in 100 years, right? Um, 
And you're also right that most of most Substack is garbage, right? Um, but most everything is garbage. Most of the books published this year are garbage, right? Um, but at least, um, you know, regular publishing operates in a kind of anarchic environment. Um, in the sense that, uh, you know, blurbs from other authors on the back of your book or recommendations from other authors help you sell your work, right? And it seems to me that this kind of um, anarchic version of peer review, which is just like you you put your work out there, you let anybody you want say whatever they want about it. Um, and that's the kind of, you know, open anarchic peer review that we have. Um it seems to me that that will have uh, it might have a lot of the problems that our current peer review does, um, but it might not. I, th I think it there's a good chance it'll work out better in the long run um, in the sense that uh, I think it will not only allow more people to comment on uh, each other's work like um you know, notori there's notoriously reviewer number two, right? The uh, person who just doesn't like your argument and you get your your manuscript back. I once got a manuscript back saying, this is, a, this is an excellent paper and it should be pu published, but uh, the author didn't uh, give any citations. Um, and there's citations throughout the whole article. It was a giant bibliography. I had no idea what the reviewer was even talking about. And then the editor rejected it because the reviewer said there weren't any citations and it was full of citations. Um, so I think problems like that, um, problems where, you know, uh, you, you can get the people that you want to read your work and comment on it, and you can write your work in a way that doesn't mask your identity. And so you're more able to produce work that uh, the general public can uh, digest and that would be of interest to somebody in a hundred years. Um, yeah. This, the whole idea behind peer review makes you like fake, remove yourself from the work to put up this, um, you know, facade of it being impersonal and you not knowing who it is. And all that results in is just work that's worse to read. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And it also, you mentioned identity. I mean, the thing that's harder in terms of the identity to discover is the identity of the reviewers. Sometimes people can still do that if they know like writing techniques and things like that, or you know the field well enough. But it, it is genuinely difficult to discover who's reviewing your paper if you're not super familiar with like the journal. Uh, and this provides like some sort of like weird like uh, issue where reviewers actually don't have a big incentive to be great reviewers because uh, a they're not getting paid right. so that's a, a, a problem in itself but b uh, there's not like a reputational mechanism for the reviewers apart from maybe the editor would dislike but most of the times editors are so busy they don't have time to like if they want to just double check the reviewers work they would just review it themselves right yeah. uh so uh in in the public forum kind of like you were mentioning more a more spontaneous uh you know idea critique if you had a person who went out and criticized articles left and right that people posted or published or whatever it was, uh, and you suddenly discovered this person who was critiquing these things actually was doing a really bad job critiquing them, then the public at large could discount that person, right? Reviewer number two, for example, if it's the fact that the case that reviewer number two, the person who's overly critical, is actually being overly critical in a bad way and says, you don't have any citations, 
And then the comment section fills up with, there's like a whole list of citations. If you not see the citations, yeah. people could discredit that person as a reviewer. And that's the sort of system that we probably do need uh, in, in the marketplace for ideas. Even if you're the staunchest supporter of, uh, of you know, the peer review process as is, I think we, we have to recognize now uh, that the current reviewer system is slanted towards, uh, I don't know if lazy reviews are right, but uh, certainly not rigorous uh, time intensive reviews. There's just no incentive for anybody to put in that much time into an academic article, except for if they care passionately about, you know, the field, uh, which some people do, but not everyone does. Yeah, this this but, is why book reviews aren't pseudonymous, right? Um, if you put out a book, you know, and you get a blurb on it from Stephen King or whatever saying, you know, this is uh, it's thrilling or whatever, then somebody who it's not just the case that people who dislike Stephen King go like, well, I don't like Stephen King, so I probably won't like this. But if you like Stephen King, then, you know, you might like it, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, just to kind of close this thing up a little bit, um, I think there's a movement. Uh, a lot of the universities and schools are probably as this thing evolves over time and the old codgers retire and the new young bucks come up, there's a little bit more of a respect for Oh, for lack of a better word, the number of likes or positive comments from stuff that that got published and and uh, reputable people saying that they like their work. Um, I think at places like Ottawa, where we don't have a huge research component, uh, in fact, none for most of the positions, um, just seeing that you're you're writing and you're getting published in various outlets is a positive thing. And so there might be a little bit of a growth that direction. I don't know if the Ivy Leagues or the old. Uh, the state university R1 schools will, they're probably pretty set in their ways, but there's there's still a large number of colleges and universities that really don't operate under that setup. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, more so than ever. I think you're bringing up a really important point, which is that like the reason this system survives is because that is how merit is uh, accrued and distributed in academia. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, Five-star rating helps other people find us. So uh, we're on all the major podcast apps. Otherwise, maybe just shoot an email off to a friend or family member that you think might like this episode or some of the others. Uh, we just broke over 19,000 uh, plays. And so we're happy to keep uh, producing this and having fun along the way. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.